90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, doing pretty good. Escaping the heat and, you know, trying not to blow ourselves up out here in the country with all these fireworks. That's true. You know, in Colorado, you can't have any fireworks that leave the ground. So other than ones that get smuggled in, uh, the neighborhood (laughs) is a little bit more subdued. But the we, we set up on top of a hill where we could see multiple cities fireworks shows simultaneously it was great oh that's pretty awesome yep so we're we're recovering from that and i've got a lot of theses to read basically i've got my first student trying to finish up this summer so that's exciting for both of us and frustrating i'm sure he would say but (laughs) i'm sure (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that's that's how it's been uh, around here Yeah, well, I'm actually getting ready to head out for the Scientific Python Conference, so SciPy. Oh, man, I know how excited you must be. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, I will say my poster is almost done, though I'm going to print it when we get to Austin. Uh, I almost never go this close, but the calculations that I'm doing take a really long time to run. So it's more like you run them, and you're like, oh, I think I could tweak this and get that a little bit different Ah. a little better and then you run it overnight again Uh, but i think i'm almost there but i'm very excited for the conference so i'll be gone for a whole week i can't believe you're going to print a poster at the city of the conference that seems terrifying (laughs) well i thought you know it's probably easier than carrying it down there because one of the last times i had to carry a poster anywhere you, you put the poster tube in the overhead bin and then watch the stewardess try to fit in (laughs) <laughs> one more roller bag by just flattening your poster with the wheels so of the true. roller bag. So true. So are you one of these people that throws away your poster at the end of the session? This one I probably will, since I'm not going to take a tube down. I don't think I'm going to take one back, and I'm certainly not going to pay to ship it back. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I remember the the conference where I finally decided that as well, and it was quite liberating. <laughs> yeah, the first poster that you make it's holy yes exactly (laughs) like i am gonna hang this on my wall and about the 50th one you make is this done yeah exactly (laughs) the worst (laughs) though this poster i am pretty satisfied with it the background and there are some other elements in it as well that are inspired by slash mimic the temperature structure of the atmosphere oh my goodness can't wait to see that background yeah (laughs) (laughs) i hope that's not lost on non-weather weenies down there even though i know there's a significant number of weather weenies that do go don't they it's true there's going to be a whole geoscience atmospheric science birds of a feather session awesome that's awesome well i can't wait to hear about that so if any of our listeners do make it down there be sure to look up that session uh i'm gonna have my poster of course And then I'm co-author on a talk that's being given by Ryan May talking about making unit-aware calculations in Python. And we're just going to be floating around the whole time, the whole seven days. So make sure to look us up, and we will probably at some point have a geo-beverage outing. (laughs) Oh, geo-beverages. Delicious. Exactly. Uh, Well, while all you um, geo-science nerds are converging... Do you like what I did there? Oh, that's horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I thought on that same topic, we could continue our look at what kind of rocks occur at what kind of plate boundaries. 
<laughs> yeah, so part two out of three this week. Last week we talked about divergent boundaries, which to remind you where the plates are pulling apart. And we had continental rifts, and then we had mid-ocean ridges. But this week we're going to talk about where the plates are crashing into each other, convergent boundaries. Exactly. So because we have divergent boundaries and we're making new crust, we have to get rid of it somewhere or else the Earth would be expanding, right? Which is a true-false question that doesn't always get answered correctly on my first <laughs> test, which makes me sad. <laughs> but <laughs> so convergent boundaries are where we're destroying crust. And it's a little bit more complicated in terms of the rock types than it was at divergent boundaries. Right. We're not just looking at... Uh, I'm going to say simple and get hate mail from yep. petrologists. Yep, We're not going to look at simple <laughs> lavas coming up and becoming igneous rocks. In this case, we can actually get some complicated metamorphic rocks, which are rocks of any type that are transformed by heat and pressure to something else. Right, exactly. We also have a few more boundaries, sort of subdivisions too. Um, just like divergent boundaries, we get ocean-ocean convergent and continent-continent conversion, right? That's what we talked about last week. But we also get um, some more interesting things which happen at ocean-continent convergent boundaries, which we usually call subduction zones. I, I was going to say, you can't leave subduction zones out. That I was know. far too much of the last five years of what I did. <laughs> I know. I, I figured I'd have to rein you in on that. So we're going to talk about ocean-ocean first and ease into this subduction zone, and then we'll try not to let John talk too much about earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but ocean-ocean convergence is just two oceanic plates that crashes together. One slides underneath another, and basically you start to melt one of them. Exactly. And, you know, there's some interesting physics going on here because, well, who is going to go beneath whom? Yes. <laughs> so this is a little more complicated, right? Because we always say in ocean continent convergent, which we talked about in the plate tectonics show, you know, ocean crust is more dense, so it goes beneath the continental crust. Done. Ocean ocean convergent. Yeah, this is a hard question to answer. I mean, it's a lot of times you're looking at pretty much the same thing. You've got some kind of basaltic base, and then there's a lot of sediment that's been deposited over a very long period of time mm -hmm. where this made up the ocean floor. And then two things that are basically very similar hit each other. And you know what it really comes down to is age. How yeah. old is the slab compared to the other one? Because the older it is, the cooler it's going to be in general. So that slight temperature difference, as opposed to the density difference that we usually talk about in convergent zones, is what's going to make the difference about which oceanic plate lives and which one dies. Exactly. And the so the density and temperature, they're not totally separate, right? They are connected. Correct. Because ultimately, this is a buoyancy problem. Yes. But you do get two very similar materials that are meeting, and it can be a hair's difference that determines which one goes down and begins to melt. What you're doing is when you have this downgoing oceanic plate, it's not just the oceanic plate that's going, it's all the stuff that's on top of it right. as well, which is a lot of wet, gooey, ooze, sedimentary stuff. Yeah, and lots of unfortunate animals, maybe. Um, 
<laughs> so they take all this stuff down with them. Plus, there's a lot of hydrous minerals in the ocean floor. And this is where you start to talk about some more physics changes. Um, because in addition to just that plate, you're bringing all this hydrous minerals down with it. And the addition of that water actually lowers the melting point of that chunk of crust. Yeah, so you get this modification of the melting point, and you end up getting little pockets of melt, and that downgoing slab starts to melt away, break apart. And so where does that go, though? And that's where these buoyant blobs of magma start to rise to the surface, and you get to create volcanoes. So if you were to think about this in meteorological terms, you can think of this as a hot air parcel... (laughs) surrounded in a cooler atmosphere and it's rising up and creating uh, an updraft slash thunderstorm but the analogy kind of breaks down there yeah well i mean kind of i mean you you get it you get thunderstorms to spread apart when they hit a certain part of the atmosphere and you know volcanoes erupt maybe it's kind of the same but we're digressing um yes (laughs) so what kind of rocks are we making here well we've just made some more igneous rocks and these are called ocean island arcs um and these are like the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. Exactly. So we've melted, it comes back out, it cools, it becomes rock again. So it's definitely igneous. Yes. And you know, you said earlier, well, maybe some unfortunate animals. So I'm curious, <laughs> what is the average plate rate? And hmm. of course, it's going to be a range because it varies around the globe. Different, mm-hmm. different areas can move at very different speeds. But if you had to name an average rate, what would you think? Well, I mean, some of them move pretty fast. Um, I'm going to say a couple of millimeters a year. Oh, yeah. So it's actually a little more than that. Oh, Uh, really? Yeah. There are places that are moving very slow. But if you look at sort of a global average, you can think four to six inches a year. Oh, wow. Oh, that's impressive. So, yeah, see, there may be some animals that get stuck there. And, you know, the way I like to describe that to people because inches or millimeters per year is a hard thing to conceptualize. The plates move roughly somewhere between the speed that your fingernails grow and the speed that your hair grows. Those are actually pretty close numbers. Really? That seems quite significant, actually. Hmm. So every time you clip your fingernails, you know, think that's how far San Andreas is crept. (laughs) Gross. Um... Oh, that's awesome. Okay, let's get into these more exciting rocks. So, subduction zones. Now, as John has told you many times, <laughs> um, <laughs> there's lots of hazards associated with subduction zones, and we've talked a lot about earthquakes, and then there's also tsunamis and good old igneous volcanoes again. Yeah, so subduction zones are ocean-continent convergence. As we've talked about in other shows, the continents are much less dense than the oceanic crust. So the oceanic crust always goes below. If we had continental crust subducting under oceanic crust, it would be an interesting world indeed. (laughs) Uh, But we don't. So what you end up having is this downgoing plate that's going at a relatively shallow angle, and they're kind of locking together and stick slipping past each other. And that's where the earthquakes come from. The earthquakes can also, their movement, sudden movement, can also generate a tsunami, like Shannon said. And then similar to what happened when we formed island arcs, you still have downgoing oceanic plate that's still wet. And so you're going to melt and get these hot bubbles rising again. So the chemistry in you make these volcanoes, 
like the island arcs, but the chemistry is a lot different because you're not only melting, you're not melting just the oceanic plate, you're melting that continental plate that's overriding it. And now you get some big volcanoes that go boom. <laughs> you don't get volcanoes that are just mafic material. You can actually get more felsic volcanoes, which, as you alluded to, are often thought of as the exploders, not the uh, lava oozy kind. Exactly. So think about the Cascades. Um, you know, Northern California up through Washington, there's lots of volcanoes. And, you know, Mount St. Helens, those are very explosive volcanoes due to that thick amount of continental crust that they wind up um that they wind up melting on their way up so those are igneous rocks but we're also making metamorphic rocks here too at these subduction zones right and so you have extreme temperature you have extreme pressure because you have two giant tectonic plate sized bulldozers crashing into each other <laughs> right exactly and when we talked about metamorphic rocks um if you guys remember, these follow a very specific pathway during their formation based on the PT conditions that they're uh, exposed to. And so this is cool because this gives us sort of, you know, pressure and temperature conditions throughout these subduction zones, really. Right. And so you get all kinds of like interesting mineral phase transitions that go on as you're dewatering the downgoing plate and, of course, melting. And then you can also get contact metamorphism inside a magma chamber because you have high temperature and pressure. That's right. So you get these different types of metamorphic rocks, that contact metamorphism that John just talked about, and then there's a different type of metamorphism happening at depth along that slab where you're in sort of a higher pressure, lower temperature condition too. Right. And so here you get into the words that I think you geologists <laughs> make up. They're not real rocks. <laughs> we don't see them on <laughs> <laughs> that's so true um and so the word he's talking about is zeolite right <laughs> uh, that's uh, one of them i love that one and that one actually encompasses a whole bunch of different stuff it's like i feel like it's the garbage can word of rocks um but you also get blue schist facies at these subduction zones as opposed to underneath the volcanoes where you're getting amphibolite and green schist facies yeah, this is just made up. No, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, prove it wrong. You can't do it, geophysicist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it is sort of true. I feel like if you're looking at some kind of metamorphic rock and you don't know what it is, you can either say blue schist, green schist, or zeolite based on almost a guess. Yeah. And somebody go, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who's going who's gonna to fight you on that? <laughs> I mean, generally. <laughs> no, but there are, of course, the, the igneous and metamorphic petrologists who can do this very accurately. But yes. <laughs> each of these different facies that you find tells you a lot about the pressure and temperature conditions where this forms. So you can infer where along the subduction path it formed and use that to estimate or infer what's actually happening there along the subduction path now. Right. I think that's really cool because obviously this isn't a place where you can stick a lot of equipment and have it survive. So what you actually have to do is look at the rocks and this is what they start to tell you. Um, igneous rocks tell you geochemistry. Metamorphic rocks tell you these pressure temperature conditions. Right. And you've also <laughs> got sedimentary rocks. These are some really cool, <laughs> this is like a cool process in my mind to think about, you know, because we obviously are trying to always 3D these processes in our mind. And um, not to be left out, 
we have sedimentary rocks that are being created here in these subduction zones, but not due to erosion like we talked about last time or we could talk about in mountain building. But these things are called accretionary prisms or accretionary wedges, and they're these large pile of sedimentary rocks that pile up as you are scraping the ocean bottom of all of its goodies as it's subducting under the continental plate. And in fact, there is a rather famous paper that models this. And in the paper, they call it a bulldozer. In fact, they have a little picture. And (laughs) you can think of the continent as a big, buoyant bulldozer that is just scraping all of this junk that's accumulated on top of our nice, pristine, once-new oceanic crust. (laughs) And when it does that, you have a down-going slab, so there's some bending action going on that creates a little triangle that fills up with sediment. And using something called critical taper theory, we can infer all kinds of stuff about the coefficient of friction between the sediment and the plate and how the scraping's going on. And the theory actually lines up pretty well with what we observe on seismic cross-sections of accretionary prisms. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't really know that it modeled that well together. That's uh, that's always a nice thing to have happen. Yeah, and this is one of those things. So another factor, for example, would be what is the pore pressure? So are you really close to being as much pore pressure as lithostatic pressure or rock above you? So what's the effective normal stress? You can infer that from this. There's a lot of knobs that you can turn in this model and try to suss out a lot of little details about the subduction zone. There are also all kinds of faults and fun things that happen. We drill through this and bring cores of it back to the lab. This is part of plate tectonics that we can actually get to and interrogate. I feel like we could probably talk about subduction zones forever, really. I was like, you notice I have, uh, as you said, more to say in this. (laughs) (laughs) in this category but i think accretionary (laughs) prisms could possibly deserve their own show because critical taper theory is a really really interesting concept and i'll actually talk about the rocks because those are pretty cool too right (laughs) um that's a good point and i just like to say accretionary prism um i think it's pretty cool It's just jargon. It's, yeah, exactly. Uh, of course, and there are all kinds of other jargons for uh, faults in the prism and names of different parts of the prism. Oh, yeah. But we'll absolutely. get into that in another show. <laughs> um, I think we should also have a show that's just bulldozer analogies <laughs> in geology. <laughs> it's true. There's there quite a, a few. <laughs> yeah, there are. Um, so this brings us, we'll try to get rid of subduction zones now and go to. Continent-continent convergent boundaries, and these are just magnificent because they're what makes all the beautiful topography that so many people like to go traipsing around in on the weekend, right? Yeah, so here you're looking at two big, buoyant bulldozers (laughs) that are running into each other, and they're both going to be roughly the same buoyancy. Yeah. (laughs) And you're not going to be making melt. Mm-hmm. and creating volcanoes what you're going to be doing is squeezing and heating the rock that's there which points towards metamorphic exactly so in continent continent convergent unlike ocean oceanic oceanic plates you're not going to actually subduct one below the other um, these are just going to hit each other <laughs> and basically thicken 
the lithosphere in this location. And just like John said, this is a big, large area, and it's a lot of high pressure, and you're going to get what we call regional metamorphism, which we talked about in the Metamorphic Rock Show. And that's the prevalent process um, that's creating new rocks, which are these metamorphic rocks. But the boring thing is, is, as these mountain ranges are being built, you actually don't really get to see these metamorphic rocks because they're pretty far down there. It's true. They're deep in the the core of the mountain range. But if you wait long enough or you go to the right place on Earth where this has happened a long time ago, you can see these as they've been uplifted and eroded down to. Exactly. So you lived right in the middle of one of these great old mountain cores um, in the Appalachian Mountains. And all kinds of beautiful blue schist and green schist facies. And I mean, it kind of stinks because there's a lot of vegetation growing all over there. You have to really go to road cuts and find some pretty spectacular um, examples of these metamorphic rocks there. That's pretty easy to do. It's true. And from different characteristics, different textures in these metamorphic rocks, you can infer what the principal direction of stress was when they were formed. There's all these interesting stress shadows that occur mm-hmm. so there's lots of interesting things there and these this process of mountain building that shan's talking about is home to another one of our ten dollar geology words it's <laughs> called an orogeny <laughs> yep orogenesis is a spectacular um process and that's always pretty fun but you might re- recognize that we've talked about orogenesis before when we talked about orographic lift and why mountains create um storms rain shadows and clouds and everything else so it's kind of a cross-disciplinary word it's true exactly (laughs) um and so you know all these thousands of geologists that work out in the himalayas all we have to do is wait a couple million years not a couple a couple hundred million years and then eventually we'll get to see those metamorphic rocks that are being created down there and have all the answers It will all be very clear then. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) There'll be 2,000 more words for orogenesis by then in the geologic lexicon. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I think that's, um, those are the convergent boundaries that I thought we should talk about. So we've kind of stretched out of our igneous rocks that we talked about last week and threw in a bunch more igneous rocks, but also a bunch of metamorphic rocks. And that's just something that um, both of us, Growing up in and around Oklahoma and that area just don't have a lot of experience with metamorphic rocks. It's true. We don't really have much at all. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's fun to act like we know what we're talking about when we talk about them. So. <laughs> and next week, of course, we'll go on to the third type of plate boundary, which is a transform boundary and all the interesting rocks that can occur there. Yeah, basically, well, I won't ruin anything. I'll just wait. <laughs> Yes, you have to wait in suspense to hear about transform boundaries. Exactly. (laughs) But I think that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Man, Steve's a lifesaver, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) You picked this out, and it's actually a series of press releases from NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, about sea pickles (laughs) so i just wanted to talk about this because i heard this on npr and i thought for sure that these people didn't know what they were talking about and i was like they're called sea cucumbers why do they keep calling these things sea pickles pickles and cucumbers aren't necessarily the same thing (laughs) shannon they're they're sea cucumbers until they're in the the juice for a really long time exactly (laughs) then they're sea pickles 
<laughs> That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about him, and I thought we'd read these press releases because there's some pretty sweet pictures of these things that indeed look like pickles. <laughs> they do. And I had to look up a lot of words in here. <laughs> Pyrosome being the first one. Yes. Uh, and then in the first three sentences of that Wikipedia article, there were about 20 more tabs open. <laughs> you fell down the pyrosome wiki hole. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Yeah, so these, the, these the idea weird. of this is the NOAA Fisheries, uh, their Northwest Science Center, was doing a survey. And they, in one five-minute tow of a net dumped it out they were looking for some rare fish and when they dumped the net on deck they had over 60,000 of these pyrosomes in the net oh i love this this sucks so bad because they're looking for these fish and they wind up counting these dumb sea pickles that are all in their way and they get this many of them and these little guys well i say little because some of them are only an inch or so long but some of them are two and a half feet long yeah that's not something you'd want to no <laughs> have brush up against your leg i uh, know so. not at all and um i guess i mean you should definitely go go and look at the pictures of these things but what these pyrosomes are they're these little colonial organisms right and um they kind of they actually don't know a lot about them about how they eat why they exist what they're doing to the ecosystem out here um but what did you find out about pyrosomes john well, so one thing is you don't have to worry after looking at these pictures about them brushing up against your leg unless you're more than 40 miles offshore. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so these are 40 to 200 mile offshore organisms. They live down a couple hundred feet, and then at night they come up. And so let, let me just read you a couple sentences from the Wikipedia article. Pyrosomes, genus Pyrosoma, are free-floating colonial tunicates that live usually in the upper layers of the open ocean and warm seas. Skip a little bit here. Uh, cylindrical or cone-shaped colonies made up of hundreds of thousands of individuals known as zooids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So looking up a few words here, like tunicates, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which has the uh, very helpful definition that it is the subphylum of tunicata. Uh, yes, exactly. This <laughs> These are a bunch of little tiny one to two millimeter organisms that form a fabric. And this fabric is a tube that's open at one end, open at the bottom, closed at the top, and they're all facing the same way. So the outside is bumpy where all of their little bodies are. And then the inside is almost perfectly smooth except for a little hole for each of them to squirt water out. And so they bring water into them, filter out anything that they can eat, and then squirt it out on the inside. And by doing that and all moving their cilia in a coordinated manner, they can actually drive this big fabric of goo up and down and around. Drive their big pickle tunic around. Yes. And so cilia are like these little, um, like if you see anemone, I mean, this is not an exact analogy, but cilia are little fibrous-like things, you know, so they've got these little strings coming off of them that they can coordinate together. And that's kind of crazy to think that you could get, you know, thousands of these zooids that can coordinate this together. There's a lot of uh, 
colonial biology going on to um, move these pyrosomes around. Right. And so they're, you know, I said they suck water in. It goes through something that is called the bronchial basket. Okay. <laughs> which is their filter. Mm-hmm. And they're still considered planktonic, which from what I found means that though they can sort of drive themselves around, they're really at the mercy of the currents. Right. Well, you can imagine a one-inch pickle going up and down over 100 feet in the water that that's going to happen. Right. And it also looks like that they're bioluminescent in most cases. Oh, that's even scarier. So... (laughs) To think of, I mean, these guys, uh, these fishermen are having a hard time out there because, I mean, they're pretty heavy and they get nets full of these things. That's pretty scary to think of these, not only just floating pickles, but floating uh, neon pickles up and down in the water. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, I I worked on a, uh, I volunteered on a NOAA fisheries boat many years ago now. And we would do these kind of trawls and bring it up and dump it on the deck. And it was always interesting to see what you would get. And you could see regional differences for sure. And we would count and measure scallops and fish and crabs and lobster, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I never saw a single one of these, but we were off the Northeast coast. I do know though, if a net came up and 60,000 of these dumped out and you had to sort through those to get to what you wanted. It would be a really bad night shift. Oh, exactly. Um, and this is pretty unusual for these NOAA researchers in the Northwest because these sea pickles are generally found in tropical waters. And so this is also one of the reasons, not just the insane numbers, but one of the reasons this is making news is because until three years ago, they had never been seen in these area and their numbers have gone up um, probably exponentially since then. And so it's very odd that they're in these cool waters as opposed to the more tropical waters that researchers are familiar with seeing them in. Right. And they do have some predators. So dolphins and whales and some other bony fish will eat them, Mm -hmm. but there's no way that they can handle this population (laughs) boom. So what this does to the offshore ecosystem is really unknown at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these weird creatures that we don't know a lot about show up in this place that they've never been to, and who knows what's going to happen. Um, so this is a, this is a really interesting in terms of the larger discussion on how Earth's temperatures are changing and the ocean temperatures are changing because the oceans are drivers for, you know, all of our weather, essentially. So this is an interesting thing that is unique, and it will be weird to see what happens in the future with these seat pickles exactly so we've got uh, a link to the NOAA article and there's also a link to a life science article that's got a couple uh, better pictures of these guys <laughs> if you want to see one of them from an underwater camera where it just yeah. looks like the water's really dirty with these things yeah that's exactly it that picture was really strange these could be just little guys floating in a single drop or then you realize that these are that's a large panorama of Thousands of seat pickles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Heck, maybe as anyone checked, maybe there aren't sea cucumbers anymore. Maybe this is just something that happens to them. <laughs> you, you could be right. <laughs> I mean, the ocean is pretty briny. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh, well, yeah. on that note, <laughs> if you have any ideas on where all of these sea pickles are coming from, 
or know anything else about them, have a suggestion for another Fun Paper Friday that you would like to hear us talk about, or general feedback for the show, we'd love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Please, someone from out here, send us your sea pickle picture <laughs> to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can always throw that picture up on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I'm at Shannon Doolin. We'd also love to see your sea pickle pictures in the uh, Swung Slack chat room, swung.rocks, and we're in the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. <laughs>